Hi, I'm Mark Rennick. This is Victory Over Sin. Through Jesus, there's victory. All the chains that were holding me kept me locked in captivity. Have been broken by grace so free. When He poured out His cleansing blood, motivated by His great love, give me faith I need to rise above. Sing a song of how I've overcome I've got victory over sin Bringing peace to the fight within Give me strength, I need to start again I've got victory over sin He gives me victory over sin Bringing peace to the fight within Give me strength, I need to start again Saturday afternoon to you, Treasure Valley. My name is Mark Rennick. This is Victory Over Sin. First part of the show, what we do is attempt to share with you what Victory Over Sin is and who funds us. Victory Over Sin is funded by the Southwest Council for St. Vincent de Paul under an advocacy grant. And our mission, our goal, our idea of what we do is to let you, the Idahoan, know what it's like to come out of prison and to live on parole. We also, uh, do we do that in several different ways? One is this radio show. And if you listen to the, go back and look at the archives of KBXL and look at the shows that we've had in the past, we've been doing this for about two and a half years now. And you'll see a whole array of people who have been on the program, national leaders, uh, elected officials. Importantly, people who've just walked out the first day out of incarceration who've been on the show. People who are about to go back. Uh, all sorts of agencies who have helped us. You, it is a good body of work to talk about the Department of Corrections and how it works in the state of Idaho. Obviously, we would like for you, the Idahoan, to understand a little bit more about what's going on so that we can effect some change because it could use some attention of people in Idaho. Most of us would argue that you have no idea about what that is, what it costs, and what the emotional cost is to the families of people who are incarcerated in the state. So that's one of the things we do as a radio show. We also do a PowerPoint that we're happy to bring out to your church, to your business, to your organization, if you will. It's about a 25-minute PowerPoint. And in that PowerPoint, we address many of the issues that we live with on an ongoing basis on parole as we come out of incarceration. We think that's that'll be an eye-opener for you. We think that'll be impressive. And it should spark some discussion just after that. The great thing about this is that it is led by a person who's just out of incarceration themselves. So they are trained to do that and to facilitate that discussion. At the end of the show, I'm going to let you know how to get in touch with me. And if you are interested in any of those things, or as we talk today, you think, I need to get involved with some of this work, please reach out and get in touch with me. We do some exciting things, and we're looking forward to the future uh, in a strong way of effecting change here in the state of Idaho. I keep talking about a new office that we've had for almost a year now, and it's located at 8620 West Emerald Suite 140. That would be a place to come by. We're open 9 to 12, Monday through Friday. We try to be that first spot for people to come after incarceration. We'll give them a a voucher for some clothes. We'll set them up with some resources. And in addition to that, if you're listening to me in the desert right now and you do not have a ride once you're getting picked up, Talk to your case manager or write me a letter, and we will come out and pick you up, bring you to the office, and take you around that first day. So I'm excited about what's going on. We've got a a man who was on the show um, 
most recently a couple of weeks ago, and he's been in town, and we've had some time to for him to share with Idahoans, and we're going to recap and talk about that, and we'll do that in just a second. The United States has the highest percentage of its population in prison in the world. That's one in 200 Americans are currently serving time in a federal or local prison. As of May 2017, Idaho has 8,223 men and women incarcerated and another 17,201 on probation and parole. So upon release from prison, who works with these individuals and families to help them transition back into our community? This is done by what we call Returning Citizens Resources and Coffee Shop. We offer them a cup of coffee and some resources and information to help get them on solid footing with their faith, their recovery, and to begin their new life as our neighbor. It's designed for the offender's first stop from the institution. If you'd like to help us help them, please contact Mark Rennick at 629-8861. That's area code 208-629-8861. And if you're out in the desert needing any help for your transition we pay for that call okay i am excited we've had uh it's been a big day a big week for us here in um in boise we've had my guest here on a second ago we've had a community information resource fair which we've been able to share with you the public about what's going on but i'm happy to welcome back glenn martin to the show in person in studio glad to be here hey this is kind of <laughs> cool is this your first trip to boise this is my first trip to boise yes you should see him we got him off the plane and he was like Man, how quick it was just to walk down one terminal, <laughs> you traveling all around the place and everything and all sorts of stuff. And it's just an easy kind of place to get into. And the weather was great. Fantastic. Glenn is a senior consultant founder of Gem Trainers, which is his organization now. Uh, but we will talk about how I know him and what he's done in the past in a second. But give us a little bit of blurb on Glenn Martin for me, please. Sure. Uh, in some ways, uh, the consulting work that I do now is the least interesting thing that I've ever done. Uh, 20 years as an advocate, uh, criminal justice reform, started this work after serving six years in prison in New York State for robbery, uh, came out, landed at a public interest law firm, uh, learned how to do policy advocacy work in a very sort of sophisticated inside-outside uh, way, working mostly with the legislature in New York originally and then in a number of other states to remove barriers to employment and housing and education and so on. And then uh, my career evolved into, I spent some time at a reentry program as senior vice president there, the Fortune Society in New York. That was important to me. It brought me in closer proximity with thousands of other people that were exiting the criminal justice system. In fact, we served about 4,000 people per year, um, which unfortunately in New York is nowhere near meeting the need but it did give me, again, um, a, a very sort of more holistic understanding of the range of barriers people face when they exit prison. And then went on to launch Just Leadership USA, which is how you and I met. And mm-hmm. I'd love to dig into that a bit and talk about the work that we did there. Yeah, because I think uh, just uh, every once in a while it'll come back to me how um, impactful Just Leadership was for me. Uh, you and I met, I think, in 2016 at uh, – um, a uh, emerging leader workshop in um, Chicago, and I was—we had just gotten some money from uh, uh, an advocacy group out of St. Vincent de Paul, and they said you can have this money, but you got to go back here and do this in Chicago. And uh, it was mind blowing for me to be in a room at the University of Chicago—I think that was—with like forty or fifty other people who had all been incarcerated and all had almost worse stories than mine, and we were all similar. And it was. It was very powerful for me, and um, 
And I, I, I've been excited since that time. I've been a part of several of those things. And But that's tell me about that concept and how you came up with that. From just Sure. Sometimes I think I get way too much credit for uh, Just Leadership USA. The truth is that for me, it was commonsensical. Um, one day I woke up and said to myself, you know, the more you emerge as the exception to the rule is the more you reinforce the rule. And yet I understood that I, as a formerly incarcerated person, was able to accomplish the things I've accomplished because I was exposed to a very sort of unique array of opportunities during my reentry. And so I really sat with a friend of mine who's a lawyer in New York um, and really asked her to just drill me hard about what worked for me. And how can I package that and share it with others? And how can we do it? Um, originally, we talked about, you know, could we do it in a three-month period of time? And that evolved to six months, and that evolved to 12 months. And in some ways, the impact of Just Leadership, uh, even though the formal program is 12 months, the impact is, should be for the rest of your life, to be quite honest, because of the networks. And, and so what I came up with is that, um, first of all, there was a – there was a training that I was involved in years earlier, almost serendipitously. I was doing fundraising work, and uh, a gentleman from a foundation asked me, would I be interested in a leadership training, which at the time was led by David Mensa, who we both know at this point. Um, and, you know, I was fundraising, and he's the funder, and he said, would you be interested in the training? The answer was yes, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and I took my resume and cut and pasted it and sent out the application, and a couple of weeks later, I got accepted into the program and met David Mensa, who ultimately ended up working for me at Just Leadership USA. But what he gave me and what he shared with me was just groundbreaking for me and life-altering. And so I wanted to package a bit of what David Mensa shared with me years earlier and share that with other formerly incarcerated people. I wanted to create a network of formerly incarcerated people around the country who were doing this work. I wanted to elevate the field by recognizing that if we are fighting against an issue where the majority of people have been de uh, dehumanized uh, as a way to sort of create the system that we have, then the only way to re rehumanize people is to literally give them space to tell their stories. And that was part of what was important in creating Just Leadership USA. But again, it was, it was really a culmination of my success in saying to myself, uh, what are the chances that people would have the array of opportunities I've had and can I package those things, put them together, uh, interest funders in supporting it, and then share it with as many formerly incarcerated people as possible. And by the time I left, we had impacted over 400 leaders like yourself around the country. Right, and I think that's the, uh, again, I I can think of the people who've come up to me, people close to me, and said, it changed for you after I went through the year-long fellowship. And I think they're on, they've just completed their fifth year they're taking applications for the sixth year. And uh, I, I, the last couple of years, I've been fortunate enough to be in a position where I could send five people on both situations to one emerging leader in Phoenix, and then we just got back from Alaska with another. And I got to watch those the, the eyes of the people in that that I brought up there get changed by hanging around with David and with Ron, Uncle Ronald and all those people. And so I got to see how they got excited, and it was so nice to be able to sit in the room and watch that change. And one of them was my son. So, and it was so interesting to see it, the, the uh, light bulb go off, and to see this is really powerful, and to see that because I'm I've, so far I've been the only person that's come from Idaho and gone through the fellowship, and we hope to change that next year. But it's it, it's just powerful, and I can't seem to be able to on the show or do what do we do articulate how powerful that can be, and it. What you set up for us is just amazing, and 
I am certainly forever in your debt and kind of setting that up for me because it it just literally changed my life. I did that and everything started to flow differently for me and everything started to flow in the way I viewed myself, the way I go forward and the way I anticipate and the way I interact with people. I, certainly your format of setting it up, but hanging around David was, was very, very, very special. And the powerful network that you that you envisioned is there and so that you and i are in a situation where we can go to any state in the nation and pull up one of those people they'll do anything for us pick us up they'll meet us we talk about what they're doing and we have powerful allies in almost every state in the nation now and it's exciting to see it get bigger yeah and you know part of it is we also have shared language right we all sort of went through the same training we understand what it means when you say you know, how do you take responsibility for the outcomes that you're producing in relationships? Yeah. You know, we understand what it means to say, you know, how are you soliciting feedback? How are you creating collective leadership? How are you investing in the leadership of others as a way to grow your own leadership? Um, people, hundreds of people around the country now who have a shared vision for reform, uh, half by 2030, which is, you know, what we refer to, also have this shared experience and, and this shared language. And I thought that that was actually equally important. We were all sort of working in silos, and I felt as though, unfortunately, the field was set up in a way that wasn't fostering uh, collaboration, particularly amongst people who were most impacted by the criminal justice system. And so, you know, there's a lot more work to be done, but in some ways I feel as though we've built uh, an army of uh sort of like-minded people that are now moving forward much more collectively. And I think that's too. It was always been when we first started my agency and some of the stuff we've grown. It is like people here are still working in silos, and you saw that the other night in terms of how people were there. And I think a different voice, especially coming from uh, outside the area, coming in and telling that should have been something that I think I anticipated kick-started people, and I, I'm, I'm very thankful for you to doing that. Let's talk about your... Um, Biggest project, let's talk about Rikers, and which seemed to be a monumental project for you to take on that no one potentially could even think that it would work. How, where did, how did that idea come apart, uh, come about, and what was the strategy in that situation? Sure. As, as I mentioned during my talk, you know, I like to tell the story of Rikers because if you think of the criminal justice system, in many ways, Rikers is sort of the most insidious version of what we've created with respect to mass incarceration. And I wanted to start with the deep end of the pool, and Rikers is certainly the deep end of the pool. Um, you know, when I was at Rikers, I was 16 the first time, 16 years old, and uh, I was there for a couple of days. A judge gave me $1,500 bail and was trying to, uh, in his words, teach me a lesson. And I got stabbed three times in a bullpen on my way back to court a couple of days later and ended up back in front of that judge. And, you know, unfortunately, I think the lesson he taught me is that I can survive in gladiator school. And it did nothing to help keep me out of trouble. It, it actually showed me the power of the state to crush people. Um, and ended up back at Rikers years later and did a year and arguably suddenly I was the person who was uh, the violent person there and trying to survive and so on. And it was just, it just stayed with me for the rest of my life that um, this is a place that churns out a tremendous amount of human carnage. And they don't call it gladiator school for no reason. You really have a choice as soon as you walk through the door, predator or prey, and then there's nothing in between. And so as I evolved and, you know, I earned a college degree while I was in prison and came out and was able to do all of this work and advocacy and so on, I always said to myself, I wanted to turn back to Rikers and see what I could do to literally shut the place down. 
And even after 17 years of work in this field, when I first said it out loud, I remember I was sitting at a criminal justice conference and all of my colleagues are in the audience, a couple of hundred. And I say, you know, the first goal of Just Leadership USA is going to be to shut down Rikers Island. And I can't tell you how many of my colleagues came over to me afterwards and were like, are you, are you okay? Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. Did you think that through? And, and, but yet I knew something other people didn't know at the time, which was there, was there were two efforts to shut down Rikers over the last 40 years. And both of them, you know, had varying degrees of success. But what was missing, there was just one component that was missing. And it was the voices of people who had served time on Rikers. They were just left out of the discussion. And there were a bunch of well-intentioned people trying to make a case to New Yorkers about why we shouldn't have this torture island in our backyard and why spending $290,000 per bed per year to incarcerate a person at Rikers made no sense whatsoever. And all of the violence and, and I mean, you know, for the audience, for people who don't know Rikers, just really quickly, I mean, it's 10 jail facilities all on one remote island next to one of the most progressive, resource-rich cities in the world, 200 feet away from LaGuardia Airport, one of the busiest airports in the Northeast. And yet it cannot be further from humanity. Um, and, and once you get there, you really are in a penal colony that is run by correction officials who themselves have this feeling um, that once you're there, you sort of belong to them. And it was purchased from a guy named Richard Riker, who used to head up our courts in New York, actually, and who would capture free black men and have them appear in court in front of him the next day and send them back into the slaveholding South. So it also has like this insidious history of racism. And I would argue that that sort of systemic racism still exists there. But here's the point. We knew we had to get into the collective consciousness of New York is that if we all work together, that we could not only envision something different, but that we could end up someplace different. And so at the time when we launched the campaign, granted there weren't 22,000 people there the way there was when I was 16, there were 11,300. But just last week, I did an op-ed in the New York Daily News about this because the city now is projecting that they can get the number down to 4,500 to be able to shut down Rikers. So we did get the mayor to say yes. Um, we're trying to figure out, you know, the devil's always in the details, pardon the expression. We're trying to figure out what does the world look like post-Rikers, and we can have that debate. But we weren't even having that debate just a couple of years earlier. We were we were all saying to each other that we're stuck with this thing. It's an island. It's our jail system. We're a city of nine million. We absolutely have this, have to have this, which was a joke to me. And now we're arguing over whether we can have 4,500 jail beds or can we go as low as 2,800 jail beds? Imagine that. I mean, this literally was just not even a conversation just a couple of years earlier. But I'm telling you, what really worked was people who had been to Rikers, whether they were serving time, whether they were there as a detainee, or whether they were just visiting a family member, helping other New Yorkers who may never end up on Rikers to understand how much of an insidious place it was and the fact that it existed in their names. Mm -hmm. And people were like, you know what? I don't want this torture island to exist in my name. And New York has finally started standing up and saying, we should do something different. And I think too, from that too, with the hashtag 2030, the way that helps and has built is the whole system within the state of New York has been changed. And so that led to that fight for there. And that's the only way I think we're going to get to the half by 2030 30s if we take each state system and I think that's why it was so powerful you know that you're here because our state does need that kind of uh, top to bottom overhaul if you will yeah you know I look at I took a look at your uh, criminal justice statistics uh, here in Idaho before my talk 
And I was just blown away. I mean, you guys, unfortunately, are outliers in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. You have way too many people on probation. And I'm assuming people around here think probation is some great alternative to incarceration. But the truth is, there's no worse gateway drug to prison than probation. And exactly. the fact is, you know, you guys just have way too many people under community supervision. Um, and and but but at the same time, I see it as opportunity. You guys have a huge opportunity. You have a you have a number of people that are under criminal justice supervision that is, in my opinion, just so much more potentially manageable than other places. I think there's an opportunity to turn back the policies that have gotten you here and to think about creative ways to serve people in the community. Because the fact of the matter is we both know if you talk to people who end up in a criminal justice system, you know, people are not either good or bad, you know, uh, either defendants or victims. Like they, the reality of uh, human beings is that we're all very complex. And I think if we look at people in a much more individualized way and look at circumstances in a much more individualized way and create many more sort of uh, off tracks from the criminal justice system to divert people actually back into the community, this state has an opportunity to be an outlier in a positive direction. And hopefully the talk I gave would influence that very diverse audience to think about how we do it, but how we do it collectively. If we don't do it together, we're not going to get to the finish line. Yeah, and I think we do it also, we do it with people's stories, like you've talked about a couple of times, and just the, the information we've been sharing. It really, again, you're listening to our voices today. This is a process that needs your attention. Um, uh, over the years, I've been out eight years, I've developed fairly good friendships with several of the people who are at the top of this, of the, uh, the Department of Corrections, and I'm on my fourth director so you develop uh good relationships with people but those folks are will not be the people that that can change it for you you and i have to get involved you and i have to tell our stories and we have to tell it to a part-time legislature who really has no idea about what's going on they vote on these things and they understand these things but i can assure you that as you sit down with them they really don't understand it and so you out there listening tell your story your own legislator about what happened to you, and the next time those things come up for vote, they're going to look a little bit differently because of that conversation that you've had. You know, I've had the chance, just a few weeks ago, I had the chance to meet our current president, President Trump, um, after he signed the First Step Act, and uh, before that, I had a chance to meet President Obama, and both of those opportunities came out of uh, either my storytelling or storytelling of other people who were working on campaigns. But more recently, uh, I got a phone call from a good friend of mine who said, you know, do you know uh, Congressman uh, Hakeem Jeffries? And I said, yeah, I do. He said, oh, because I'm at an event in Kentucky and he's telling a story about listening to a young man in New York who told a story about uh, a correction officer guiding him towards college in prison and what it meant to participate in college in prison and how it changed his life. And Hi Congressman Jeffries was saying that that was such an important moment for him in his career to hear about how those sorts of interventions can really change people's lives. And here it is. I mean, it, I didn't even know I had that impact on the congressman. Yeah. And yet he's been carrying the story around forever. And I was able to text him uh, later on that day, actually, and say, hey, you know, I heard you told a story today. Sounds like you were talking about me. And he was like, yes, brother. He was like, <laughs> you know, I absolutely, you know, I heard that story a decade ago and I've just never let go of it. And it's part of what drives me to do the work that I do around criminal justice reform. So I always say to people, you know, when you hear about mass incarceration, it can really sound daunting, like what can I do as an individual? Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is that everyone has the ability to at the very least be able to tell your story and influence a policymaker in the right direction. Yeah, I think so too. And I think uh, so 
we're going to run out of time, but uh, talk about uh, the blank canvas that we have here in terms of as you saw people over the the day or so. You're really only here for you know less than 24 hours or so. But what would be the the motivation, the pep talk, if you will, for because there's people listening to me right now who are living in the desert that we drove out and I showed you, uh, and but um, give them that pep talk. Give the person who's reluctant to come to some of these things that I've been trying to get them to come to, get them involved in this and let them understand that this, how powerful this can be in their life, I guess is what I would ask you. Yeah. As someone who in some ways sat in his own desert, uh, if you will, 20 something years ago in a cell in New York and really felt hopeless and unsure of what impact I could have, uh, even on my own life and my own family, much less on changing laws and policies. You know, I would tell people uh, that, first of all, no one else writes, you know, your legacy. You get to write your own legacy and you can decide first thing tomorrow morning what that legacy is going to be and start moving towards it. And you have to have a long term vision. You know, you need to understand what the horizon looks like, but you also have to be willing to roll with these sort of short term uh, daily sort of small victories that move you towards it. And so I would tell people, you know, as long as you can hold on to that vision long enough, when I told people we should close Rikers and people said, no, 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 you're going to ruin your career. This is not good for you. You shouldn't do this. And I just kept saying to myself, no, if you just hold on to this long enough, all you got to do is get other people to the point where they say, what if? And now here it is just a couple of short years later, three years later, and everyone is just so far beyond what if. Everyone's sort of digging in, sleeves rolled up, trying to figure out how to make it work. So if you're sitting there in the desert now, I tell you, you won't you don't have to be in the desert forever. And, you know, my way of getting out of the desert was to open my own mind and recognize the possibilities I had as a human being to impact how other people feel about these issues. Yeah. Okay. Hey, listen, uh, we were lucky to have him on the radio a few weeks ago. We was here. Uh, hopefully everybody got to see him this week. Um, it's powerful. Uh, he's a friend of ours, and uh, just because he's in New York doesn't mean that he isn't going to be there to help us. Uh, this is powerful. We're doing good things here, and I tell you, I've been out eight years. The strides we have made in those eight years have been have been tremendous. So give yourself a pat on the back. We are making progress, but I tell you, we still need your help. So thank you so much, Glenn, for good coming. Good to be in. back. Uh-huh. Yeah. Through Jesus, there's victory. All the chains that were holding me Kept me locked in captivity Have been broken by grace so free When he poured out his cleansing blood Motivated by his great love Give me faith I need to rise above And sing a song of how I've overcome I've got victory over sin Okay, very powerful week for us, as you know. Uh, if you were in, at that event and if you were at the event on Wednesday where the fair, we really appreciate Glenn coming into the studio and hanging out with us. If you need to get in touch with me or you want information, we're fairly easy to reach, www.systemicchangeofid.com. You can send me an email, systemicchangeofidaho at gmail.com. I'm on Facebook, Systemic Change of ID. Instagram, Systemic Change of ID. You can even call me on the phone at area code 208 208- 
We look forward to talking to you next Saturday afternoon on Victory Over Sin.